Welcome back to the Social Impact Level Up podcast. This is where we blur the lines between business, nonprofit, and impact. I'm your host, Wendy V, and I'm a social impact strategist here to help you build a successful and sustainable legacy of social change. In this week's episode, we're going to hear from a social entrepreneur who has been on a journey to change the world just like you. If you are interested in social entrepreneurship, this is the place for you. Let's jump right into this week's episode. Hey there, it's me, Wendy V, and the Social Impact Level Up podcast. We are here today with Bree Franklin of The Prosperity Project, and we're going to learn more about her as a social entrepreneur. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know that season two is all about telling the story of social entrepreneurship, making sure that we can highlight and amplify the voices of people of color in particular who are social entrepreneurs using their superpowers to change the world. And today we have someone that I am super excited to interview because she has such passion for what she's doing. We met at the FinCon convention, which is really about finance creation. And it's a really great place to come in community and meet other wonderful souls who are doing great work. So of course, as I saw Brie leaving a session, I tapped her on the shoulder and was like, we need to be friends. (laughs) And so we are becoming friends. And part of that is having Brie on this podcast to say more about herself and what she's doing. So I wanted to welcome you, Brie, to um, to our collective, to the group of people who are literally in charge changing the world. And we wanted to, I mean, just hear a little bit more about you and what you are passionate about and what drives you. Of course. Well, thank you so much for the lovely intro and opportunity to be in this space with this wonderful crowd and. Um, I remember you saying those words to me precisely, like, let's be friends as you gave me your card on the way out and not knowing what was going to come of it, because like I've had so many similar interactions happen and then people just like disappear off the face of the earth. So um, I was just really like excited by the fact that it wasn't one and done and we've been able to stay in conversation. And here we are like a month or almost two months later. Um, So, yes, I am the co-founder, president and CEO of The Prosperity Project, which is a nonprofit uh, focused on two core social impact issues. The first being um, resolving the student debt crisis, but also where that meets leveling the financial playing field for black women and closing their racial wealth gap. So um, this work, you know, came from as organic and natural of a place as it ever could. And I say that all the time because it's just that true. Um, I graduated like millions of other young people, very hopeful with a liberal arts degree that cost me um, through, you know, several loans, 100K principal. However, when I went into repayment about two years after that, that number crept up to 116 and just having absolutely no idea what I got myself into, how the interest worked, how it was being calculated, um, the, the nuances between the private versus federal debt, like it's been such a steep learning curve. So um, I was just sharing this on a call previously, like it felt like a lot of smoke and mirrors. And I noticed that a lot of people were very critical of me when I just vented my frustrations about it. They're like, well, you should have majored in something that was going to pay you better than English. And you shouldn't have gone to this fancy expensive school. But, you know, on the front end, it was like, no, go get an Ivy League degree and, you know, like major in English, that's your focus, blah, blah, blah. So there are just a lot of just straight up wrongs that I was noticing that it didn't seem like enough people were aware of or talking about. 
So um, that was like really the rooted spirit of prosperity. And then the opportunity to actually do something about that came when we found ourselves three months into COVID and also seeing Black Lives Matter take off like never before. And it was really a back against the wall, all or nothing moment. And it just made sense to move in this direction and, you know, use that as my form of protest. And to almost two and a half years later, um, just kept building and had a look back since. That's awesome. It's a great story. And I didn't um, realize that, it, gosh, it started not super long ago, but you've been able to accomplish so much that I'm super proud of you. I'm like, gosh, you because it's a it's a nonprofit organization, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're a designated nonprofit. That means you've you've gotten your nonprofit designation. You have a board of advisors. You have like wonderful marketing materials. You've raised money. You have cohorts of people who've gone through your program successfully, and you're getting feedback on your programming and scaling it. And you've done that all since 2020. <laughs> Am I right? You are correct. And it has not been an easy climb. Like there were so many days where I woke up, you know, tears down the face, like, why did I ever think this was a good idea? Um, But yeah, that persistence and having you said it, the key word, the people, you know, like the team that we've built and our advisory ship has gotten so much stronger than when we first started. And I really credit them for helping, um, you know, guide me on steering the ship and making better, more informed decisions. And being able to pull off all these miracles. Yeah, I know. It's great. And you, um, you're so gracious about it too, because as a founder, you know, you're just so humble about all the things that you've been able to accomplish that it's so much more. So it's so exciting to see how big and bold your vision is and that you're taking each of those action steps, which we talk about all the time. How do you continue as a founder to take the inspired action every day that accumulates into something really big and really good that you often can't see at the beginning of your vision. So when you were thinking about your vision and thinking about doing this, like how did you decide to just step out and do it? Because some people don't have the guts to do that. It's so funny. Um, So this really wasn't my first foray into entrepreneurship. Before this, I took a swing at it with a for-profit called The English Major Takes Tech. And that was my way of making the most of that situation because, um, as I alluded to, like so many people gave me grief for studying English and they called it, you know, all kinds of things, impractical, a waste of time, waste of money. But I'm like, that's my skill set, though. Like, I'm great at writing. I'm great at communication. And um, I tried, you know, more, quote unquote, practical classes. And uh, the grades were, were definitely reflective of the fact that, that was not my strength and where I'm meant to make impact in this world. So. Um, even though that was short lived and, you know, ultimately ended up fizzling out as more of like a creative hobby, um, going through those ropes, like filing the LLC and bringing all the different things together, creating a bank account for the business and the marketing and putting myself out there on LinkedIn, that all proved really helpful so that when June 2020 rolled around, it was just like I had that experience to defer back to. Um, but also, you know, the, the situation I found myself in in that moment. It was like, like seriously, like if I don't like just take really big, drastic action, you know, what's scarier, like putting myself out there just to start this and go off on a limb or continuing to stay where I was, which for reference was basically freeloading off of um, my ex and his housemates, you know, just because we were thrust together in the pandemic. I was supposed to just stay with them for a month to like get on my feet. I just moved to California. But then COVID literally undid the world. And at the time I was working in fitness. So that was the first industry to go. And 
it was just like, I remember sitting down on that outside balcony table and just writing in my journal, like, I am too talented and too smart and too creative and driven to not have anything going for me right now, like to be in this boat. And also, I really want to make this change. Like, I, you know, I, seeing the protests, I felt guilty that I wasn't in those crowds with a megaphone. But I was like, you know, that's probably not the best way for me to affect change, like from what I'm capable of. Like there are, um, you know, the the like trailblazers in that crowd who are um, out on the, the front lines and like they are making major waves. But I'm like, I think for me, it's going to need to be more in my wheelhouse of where my strengths are. So it really was just like I couldn't see myself doing anything else in that moment. Um, and funnily enough, I was at the time trying to apply to work for an influencer who, who put out a call to like diversify her team. And in the process of trying to really like knock her socks off with a presentation and this this research project that I just put together myself, that was the preliminary data for TPP. And then as I started to get the the feedback coming in and seeing how quickly people were taking and responding to it, I'm like, I think this deserves its own legs. I think this deserves to be its own thing. So um, yeah, it just, it was very much not a conventional start in any sense, but uh, it was the start that we had. No, oh, that's such a beautiful story because there's so many things in there that resonate with the things we talk about on this podcast and really following your passion when your back is against the wall and you have like other choices. But honestly, why not follow the one you're passionate about? <laughs> it's kind of the the alternative thinking. It's like, yes, I could continue to find jobs and in industries that I don't feel suitable to work in. However, what might be a better use of my passion and my skills and my energy is to serve others in this other vehicle. But there's no road forged here yet. So mm -hmm. I need to be the person to forge that road. And that's that can be a really difficult step to take. So kudos to you for just saying like, hey, this little project I did off the side to try to get a job is something that could be an entire organization. And now you have a team and you have the whole thing going forward and you can scale it to where you want it to be. And I think it's just such a cool, um, a cool thing that you're doing. And I wanted to go back to something you mentioned because this is something that I talk about in my content as well. When you are a woman of color who graduated from an Ivy League institution, it's 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 its own thing. <laughs> it's its own thing in a couple of different ways. One yes. way is that there are not very many of us, so it better be its own thing <laughs> because there are so few of us that you all need to recognize. But then on top of it, we paid for that and it doesn't matter what degree we got. Like I got a social work degree. Some people are like, you expected to make how much as a social worker? Social workers mm -hmm. don't make that much. And I think, mm -hmm. But I got an Ivy League degree from the top, one of the top social work schools in the nation in a concentration where there are hardly any people. And I worked for 15 years to grow that experience. So that degree was just the start of a longer legacy that I've been building. And I never let people <laughs> say anything bad about social work degrees. However, oh. I know what you mean, because I've had that before where people are like, well, why would you pay for an expensive top tier social work degree, knowing that that's not a high paid profession? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a stupid correlation. So I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. They get to do away with it. <laughs> Literally that, that alone, that soundbite, doing away with that system. I'm like, this model was built, you know, three, 400 years ago, right? Harvard is 450 years old, I believe. I mean, it's like the, the, the 
tradition of that institution, I think, is what is driving people more so than the value and the return on that investment. And they're not looking at it with the proper perspective. And the blame always falls on the students. And I just think of it, I'm like, if you signed up with a personal trainer and after six months, like you're doing your part, you know, you're following a a clean eating regime and you're uh, making sure to stay consistent and you're not flaking out on them. But like when you get to them, you know, they just like have you do some dumping jacks and, you know, like, I don't know, crawl on the ground six months later, like you're not getting your money's worth. You're paying them to help transform you and take you to the new level, educate you, prepare you physically. So why don't people look at it that same way? Like, why are they not being more critical of the offerings? Like if it's, you know, if English or social work or whatever, art, photography are such useless degrees, why do you offer them? Why do you provide those options for students? And such, why do other schools also offer them? Like, yeah, are we just going to do away with it? We all got to go to math and science now. Sorry, guys, we're going to be engineers. (laughs) Right. And it's like, and there's clear need, clearly need for that training, but it's like, you know, is a four-year model the best route? Because it's like the same basis that we have, you know, that two-month buffer between election night and inauguration day, because way back when everything was handled via carrier pigeons, it like took so long to tally votes. Whereas now, you know, we could do those things within 24 hours of each other, if not same day. And I think that it's just like people are losing sight of what it's really about, which is like, getting the most value for the student, they should be the priority, not making the school, you know, these big bucks and giving them these billions in the bank at their expense. Right. So um, it's my whole thing. My Like the short of it for me is like, start again, restart. <laughs> can we go like, I'm going to go to Columbia. You're going to go to Harvard. We're like, can I get my refund from your endowment, please? Cause I yeah. never, I never asked to give you that money. <laughs> Well, it didn't work out the way that your marketing materials told me it would when I was 17. So, um, And also, you decided to put my brown face on your marketing materials to get more brown people to take their money to. Like, let's be real about that, how this works, right? And I think, you know, this is, we're, we're touching on an issue, too, about um, why this is important, particularly for women of color. I mean, you work predominantly with Black women, but I think it, it really a lot of women experience this and particularly women of color who come from disadvantaged communities, mm-hmm. that student loan debt is crippling. And I can say, even from my experience, you know, you shared, you had a, over a hundred thousand dollars. I had a hundred thousand dollars from a master's degree mm-hmm. and I made financial choices that meant now I can, and I'd never invested when I was 25. You know, mm-hmm. there was like longer term financial choices I made to pay student loans. Yeah, And now I see the later effect of that. And I'm like, man, what if I like all of the $75,000 of loans I got before I got my student loan forgiveness? What if I had invested all that money? Oh, and then, mm-hmm. That would be kind of nice right now. <laughs> so depressing to think about like just what could have been because that, I mean, any finance guru will tell you, I mean, you know, they usually start with much smaller sums, like $1,000 invested every year, you know, compounds to like 365 when you're, you know, 30 years later, whatever the math is, I'm sure that's terribly off base. But it's like, if that's what it is for 1000, multiply that by 100 plus. And I mean, you know, you're talking about retiring in an island somewhere at 50, you know, like it's, it's so devastating. And that's, the perspective people need to be taking when we're, we're having these conversations with young people is like, what is this ultimately going to position you for, you know? 
Yeah. And can you say more about for particularly women of color and black women who you work with, what has been their experience with student loan debt? It's been a very wide spectrum. So, you know, with this being our pilot, it taught us everything. I think that will not everything. I think we'll always be learning and iterating, but it taught us a lot of what we were missing on the front end, um, you know, because it's like we built the program just based on really three perspectives, mine and then our or four at the at the time, our founding team. And so we didn't have a ton of, you know, variants. We didn't have like um, a, a major source of input to say like this is how it's impacting people in this demographic like it's educated us I think just as much as it's ed educated them and you know there's certain ones who are like it's not as dire like they have under uh, 20k in some cases and so we've actually made that change moving forward to where the threshold will be at least 40k minimum in private debt because we want this to really be like a source of um, life you know not life support but um, a, a major lifeline, like helping people who ordinarily without our intervention would not uh, stand a chance of getting out of debt anytime soon on their own. And so um, in those cases, for those on the lighter end, you know, it, it's been more just like an annoyance. But I mean, we have some prosperettes with as much as $300,000 in student loan debt. And in those cases, I mean, you talk about just life being turned upside down. I mean, one of them told us for the longest that it was harming her ability to become a homeowner. And it was important that she did because she was trying to move her son to a better school district because he was about to age out of his current school and going from, I think, pre-K to kindergarten or K to first or whichever of those it was. But she was really feeling stuck. And she was just like, every single bank is just, you know, immediate denial because they're like, you don't make enough money. You know, your DTI ratio is too great of a risk for us to take you on. And I mean, that's real pain. Like we have other prosperettes who are uh, already in their 40s and, you know, they're like, I give up on trying to find love and trying to, to marry because who would want to marry into $93,000 of debt? Who would want to have kids with someone who has $1,000 in student loan monthly payments when the average for raising a child, I believe, is $2,500 a month? Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, um, very disheartening in so many cases. And it's like, we just wish we could do more. Like the initial aim actually was to help them pay it all the way off, but just in not having, uh, you know, as I mentioned, like a ton of, of great advice in our corner at the beginning, we weren't completely real with ourselves about the prospects for doing that and didn't have the appreciation for what kind of major resources and then also operational sustainability is needed to help people to that extent. Like, cause my inspirations were the Gates Millennium Foundation, Robert F. Smith, celebrities like Nicki Minaj who have helped, you know, wipe out their fans and followers, student debts in just an afternoon on Twitter. And it was like, well, our hearts are in the right place, but we just don't have millions of dollars. Like, that's just what it is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Your sustainability road is going to be a little different from like a yeah. major backed organization where, where the founders have multi-millions of dollars in their pockets. Um, so I, I love that you recognize that because that's a growth, uh, that's having a growth mindset. Instead of saying that this is going to deter me from moving forward and just stopping, just saying, okay, I know that this is a learning process and I just learned some important lessons and let me take those and apply them. 
And having that growth mindset will help you keep going, you know, to where you're going to go. (laughs) So where you may not be now at a multi-million dollar budget, there will be a day when you are growing the organization to a multi-million dollar budget and that money will come from other people supporting you and maybe not necessarily your own like, you know, Brie Franklin fund. (laughs) 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 Where are your millions in your pocket that you're just pulling out for people's student debt? Um, But and it, it is important to recognize that um, women do have this this issue with student loan debt that it's never talked about. I don't think I've ever heard anyone else besides you articulate it. But I had the very same issue of being single and having people say, how are you planning to pay all of the student loan debt? Or saying, you know, you have so much debt. I wouldn't even know what to like. I wouldn't want to take that on in a marriage situation. Yeah. And I laugh now because I'm like, well, jokes on you. I got my loans forgiven and I didn't pay all of it and you paid none of it and you ain't here. Right. <laughs> um, right. And I think we are both better off for you not being here. Exactly. But, you know, that is the um, the mentality you almost have to have is like, I'm just going to keep it moving and I'm going to keep moving in my direction because if you let that stop you from loving yourself, that negativity, that statement right there from a man can make you question your decisions. And mm-hmm. I think it's important for a lot of women to understand that you need to just keep it moving <laughs> and you need to not be with a partner who ever says anything like that to you. Because even if you have to sort it out and you have to communicate about it and you have to set up a prenup or whatever you do, mm-hmm. you never want to be with a partner who's willing to hold that over you. Like that is a no, a flat out no. And respecting like that's that's where they are, that, you know, sometimes there's just no changing people's minds on that. Um, Yeah, because I think it it can be so divisive and, you know, people just are like squeamish and they lose sight of like the fact that, well, a person's earning potential is technically limitless. Like, you know, even if they are in a less lucrative industry, I mean, it's really about how you play your cards with that debt. Um, so it's like, I definitely would not like discount someone as marriage material if they had that, like, depending on how they're acting, like if they, you know, are trying to marry, like, say, you know, I was like incredibly wealthy and they were just looking at me as a handout. then it's like, okay, you know, there's, there's some like obvious intentions there, but I'm with you. I feel like, you know, people should, um, and it's possible. Like I've heard of couples who get married and they both bring a ton of debt to the table and they work super hard and they pay it off and they turn the bus around. And I feel like that's totally possible. And it's just all about like your outlook on the situation. You meet those people at FinCon every single year where they're like, we had this monumental amount of debt and like we worked together. And and, I mean, I'm always amazed by those people because I'm like, y'all have some strong communication skills <laughs> oh, and, and, resolution. and yeah i like you guys have a whole lot of skills that hopefully keeps you married for a really long time because that that is some power right there to pay off like you know thirty thousand plus dollars in debt as a couple you know and be organized about it together all the same page <laughs> like that takes a lot um so the other part that we were talking about was student loans and you know how much people have left and this is important because like i was mentioning in my story I had my student loans forgiven recently and that made, you know, all the difference in my mood, but -hmm. also in my ability to continue to follow my passion and have Mm -hmm. my own business and to not feel like I have to take a job in order to pay for the student loans that I don't even want to be paying anymore anyway. 
Like, so I, you know, I'm very fortunate to have my loans forgiven. But what's been going on for you as an organization supporting people through student loan repayment and then having this loan forgiveness thing come and it's like sometimes you think it's going to be helpful, then it like retrogrades and then the information changes. (laughs) What is going on? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the the thing I was alluding to earlier. I was like, I got tons to say about that. Um, It's been a thorn in our side because it, you know, just because of how we've run the pilot. So once we enact the future models where we're, we're really focusing on private debt, it would be a non-issue because there's no legislation in the world that could do anything about uh, the Sally Mays and the Mahellas of the world. Um, it's It's been really hard because I don't want to be, a, I'm never like a pessimist or cynical. Like I, I pride myself on being that ray of spark and silver lining and like, oh, there's always, you know, reason to have hope and to, to look at the glass half full. But when it comes to this, it really is just like signing that waiver or like applying on the website. It's really just like putting your wish in a wishing well. And that way you've gone on record to put your wish that your debt will be cleared up to 20K. But just, you know, I reading updates every single day that show that things are getting walked back and that they're making these silent changes that are excluding certain folks. And then also it's getting held up um, in court, you know, just in, in deliberations that are going on. And my thing is just like, do not hold your breath. Like, don't sit and plan your finances by it. Like my firm conviction is just like, pay it the heck off. I mean, if like, obviously, if you have federal and they work with you and it's, you know, at zero or income based and they, you know, are cutting you a break, you know, focus on other things, fine, invest. But I mean, when it comes to private debt in particular, I'm like, you, you know, our whole thing is we're working with women to build that muscle so that they don't have to rely on these sweeping gestures that may or may not happen. And it's like they can directly have control over that. They can be aggressive and, you know, to whatever tolerance they need to um, take strides to, to handle it themselves. And so that's why we're moving to a matching model um, in this new pro- program as well and having it be where we will match them up to $10,000. So before like this run, it was just we're doing 10K no matter what. But um, because it's such a varied state right now and, you know, we we don't want people to just be like, okay, well, someone's going to come in and save it and I don't have to do anything. It's like, you know, we want to get those training wheels put on, but ultimately like you've got to then take them off and bike the rest of the journey. Um, And so it's confusing and we've gotten, you know, some really frustrated, justifiably um, responses from our prosperettes who are like, what is up with y'all making all of these changes, you know, like to the retroactive scholarship model? Because basically it's been like that ludicrous song. When I move, you move. Like when Biden and them move, we move. Like we're trying to keep up and and not, you know, put money towards federal student debt if it's going to be taken care of. But then it's like, that's the big question mark. Will it ever be taken care of? And so, you know, we've had to just make some really like tough executive calls and change some things um, as as this all plays out. And then just set our hard timeline of, okay, whatever the case is by December, if they have not officially said like this is happening and all the le- the laws, suits and stuff have been cleared up, we're just going to proceed as we planned before all of this got announced. Um, but it's really hard because I think that a lot of the, the motivating factors for the government 
don't have anything to do with the actual borrowers, but rather what certain people in certain positions of power stand to gain. Yeah, there's no um, thought process, I think, ever in the government about the end user and what's going on with them. It's really like the what is the red tape that I'm allowed to work with then? And if I don't have to change any of it, that's great. If I have to change some of it, it's going to be a problem. And then when you get these lawsuits and these other things, you're like, yeah, because you guys are like kind of trying to do something like on the sneaky, which Mm -hmm. is cool because I appreciate that you were trying to help folks. But at the same time, like now we're going through the process of undoing the the decisions you made because you know, really people were going to have problems with it because it's not budget neutral. And that's anytime anything is not budget neutral, (laughs) we're always going to have problems with it. So it's just like this never ending battle. But I yeah, the federal level drives me nuts just because I worked there for so long. And I'm like, you know, policy, shamefully, policy should be made better, easier with more input from the public. And Mm -hmm. it's just never done that way. And it's just not the way it's probably ever going to be done. So you know, then we're always like the almost like the victim of these decisions. Yeah. And so there's people who are like, one day I qualify, they go to the website the next day and the website text is changed. And it's like, hold on, like you weren't even really announcing that you were changing this. You just changed some text on a website. And I wouldn't have known if I hadn't been savvy enough to come and use my resources to find this information out. But not everybody's doing that. So There are still going to be a lot of people that fall through the cracks. And if it wasn't for Good Samaritans who make it their business to blow those updates up, like I'm on the Student Debt Crisis Center's email list. So they're often how I get my breaking news on that. And then Student Loan Planner, they're also very communicative about just let's get right to it. Here's what's happening. They have some, uh, you know, plugs on the inside of these conversations that are able to help them you know, break this news. And I'm grateful because, you know, just going back to how we update our prosperettes and respond in kind for the program, it's like, if we didn't have these um, red alerts, you know, signaling it, like we'd have continued on unknowledgeably and then it would have blown up even worse. So um, it's, I think we can both agree that this is not ideal. It's it's messy and it's like well-intentioned in some ways, but I think um, it, it, it just unfortunately was not all the way thought through as well as it could have been. Yeah. And I think it's great when, you know, policies do impact people and we're able to help folks out. And I think that the people that really are getting a lot of help are the folks who qualified for the program that I was in, which is the um, the public service loan forgiveness program. But then everybody else who had Pell grants and these other grants, it's like, I mean, these other these other um, loans, like it's it's like these poor people are just here in the balance. And there's people who put their applications in into a black hole, never to be seen again (laughs) at this point. Like there is no evidence of them emerging anytime soon. So it's really, yeah, really frustrating for a lot of people. And I can can definitely understand how your particular group that you serve is really confused and like, hey, I need answers. But at least you're providing them information. So that's great. And that's helpful. Can you say a little bit more about um, what do you think the future is for the Prosperity Project? What are you trying to do? And how can people support you if they're interested in this cause? Um, What are you really looking for next? Yeah, so it's um, a very bright future ahead for us in the interim. Like we've 
pivoted, you know, in changing with the times, because even though it is just inconceivable to believe that it's been two and a half years since we started this work, I mean, the world now is already so different. Um, I would not say we are post-pandemic, but COVID adjusted. Um, so, you know, it's it's very reminiscent of the pre-pandemic times where there's a more in-person focus and Black Lives Matter only matters to a certain niche, right? It's not being, um, you know, black squared all over the internet like it was the summer that we started. And so uh, we've had to adjust in kind, but the great thing is that that's given us opportunities to um, continue expanding and really be more comprehensive because uh, I actually just went live yesterday with Yanelli. You know, you know, Yanelli has been all right. Miss Be Helpful. That's my homegirl. Um, we've worked together a couple times and it's been a great experience every single time. And I feel like she's my true partner in passion and in just like helping put, um, you know, amplifiers around these issues. And she brought up a great point, which is that as long as tuition rates continue to inflate at 9% year over year as they have for the last 20 years, current efforts to help people pay off and get rid of student loan debt are almost essentially fruitless and pointless because um, it does nothing to stop the issue from happening further and to keep it from worsening as these schools continue to drive up their prices and as these lenders continue to make it wildly and ridiculously possible for 18-year-olds to borrow 100 grand that they have no business, you know, needing to take out. But just like signing a, a line, you're like, yeah, let me just. Terrible <laughs> message about how money and lending works. And like, it, it boils my blood to think that they've made it so easy. Um, but I mean, that's the whole thing. Like with those factors being in place, we are currently on track for the issue to reach about $3 trillion by 2032. And by 2042, I believe the average cost of a four-year degree is supposed to be somewhere in like the 431K category. So what? Like, yeah. I don't even, like, I, I don't even think I paid 100K for my four years, but I went to the Irvine. So it's like a state school mm -hmm. and uh, I finished in four years and I had scholarships and grants. And so like, I, I to me, to say, hey, to start your career, you need to invest almost a half a million dollars is just like, why are we asking people to do that in mass? Not even just one person. We're asking a bunch of people to do that. Yeah, no, it's $487,004 is the exact figure. Um, and I'm sorry, that's by 2035. So, I mean, we're now, at, you know, 13 years out, but it's just like, at what point are we going to see this side reverse? And so, um, you know, that's the beauty of it, right? It's like necessity is the mother of invention. And so we're trying to pivot out to where, of course, certain Black women will still be our bread and butter. But on the forefront of this, so we've created like this whole cool three eyes framework because we use the metaphor of a fire to describe the student debt issue. So we're trying to keep people out of that fire or at least fire proof them um, by speaking to high schoolers and going into the classrooms, having these very honest and just, you know, no holds barred conversations about the issue and steps they can take to avoid getting hurt. Um, we're not trying to say like college is bad and don't educate. We're like, no, we are pro-education. We are anti-exploitation. The two do not have to be intrinsically connected. And that's where things have gone wrong is that it's kind of sold as a package deal of like, well, 
you know, you just must be willing to make that kind of financial sacrifice because it's a, you know, insert tier one degree name. Um, and so we are trying to launch that program in the new year and start to really spread that impact and follow those students we engage with to see, um, you know, once they reach their would-be post-college years, what's their debt looking like, what's their income looking like, and making sure that the income is always, you know, substantially higher than the debt if they take out any at all. But then, of course, we're going to continue 35 to 3. We're looking at doubling our cohort um, next spring. In April, we'll have 25 members. And we are also going to make that a hybrid model. So it'll be based uh, in a locale to where they can all come together as they, you know, deem appropriate. It's not like a mandate, but it just opens up that avenue for organic connection and more people saying, hey, let's be friends and passing along contact details. Uh, but then the third I, I'm sorry, the second one, 35 to free is our intervention, as I talked about. But then interference is where we go into companies and colleges and have the same kind of dialogue you and I are having, like educating people about the crisis, helping them realize that it's not just a bunch of whiny millennials and Gen Zers and that their complaints are valid and legitimate. And if we don't take action, um, the poverty rates are just going to continue to skyrocket and fewer people will be able to buy homes, fewer families will be created. Um, it, it just spells disaster for the economy. So we're already connecting with a couple organizations um, that we plan to work with to, to pilot those speaking engagements and just you know continue to get as much um, awareness as we can so that the appropriate parties can know we're out there and we can help them in whatever ways we can. I love it. I love it. You have such a well-rounded and thoughtful set of programming coming up. And I think um, all the way from education into your interference, <laughs> like I love how it's all um, like themed out and everything. It's so well thought out. And this is such a great example of um, for people who are starting nonprofits or thinking about starting their own nonprofit, of the, the stages of development that you explained in this podcast episode are really, really important for people. And getting to that part of, okay, I have a set of programming, but in the future, my programming is going to include all of these other things. It's such a nice trajectory that you just laid out for people that takes a lot of work. <laughs> and I know that you said it, you just said, oh, our programs are going to go here and here. But sometimes people have, again, another hard stop of, okay, I started this program. It didn't really do as well as I wanted, or I needed to make adjustments. And not even continuing to make that jump up, but what are the next set of programming that I'm going to bring in to serve my people or to help support my organization? That's a sustainability strategy. So you're doing really, really top level work. <laughs> I, don't, I think you're just kind of doing it, girl. So it's just great. And, but it's an example for other people of like, this doesn't have to be super hard. Right. Yes, you need support. Yes, you need partners. Yes, you need well thought out conversations and plans. But that's why people like me exist. That's why you have consultants and mentors and people come on your board and all these different folks to help you get there. Because if you were to try to do this by yourself, how far would you have gotten? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we'd probably still be in like the researching the program stage because I want to shout out our one advisor in particular, Casey Fitzpatrick. Like when she came into the game and into the fold, that's when we started to really see the wheels turn and the needle move for getting that program together because I had no idea what it took to bring this together and just, you know, like the time it takes to 
like flesh out the curriculum and hold the meetings necessary, plan the budgetary affairs, right? And know that it's not just like um, a wishing well of money. Like we have to be strategic about where resources go. So, I mean, yeah, I, this would not be a fraction of what it is without uh, those other folks in place. Not at all. Yeah. And so, and then as a founder, you're, you're a solo founder, but are you paying yourself from your organization and doing this all basically yourself bootstrapping? Yeah, well, so we do, I do technically have a co-founder, like our founding team was four folks large, but um, two of, you know, they stepped away just because it ultimately uh, was not sustainable for them to like, just keep grinding and, you know, making that sacrifice, right? Which no hard feelings at all. We're still in communication and they still follow our work. Um, But the one that remained, Ashley Wells, she's, you know, hung in there too. And she's actually a full-time student. So she's been in her academic journey. Um, we've kind of gotten to watch that from afar with her. Like she was a master's at Dartmouth when we met the summer that this was founded. And then she got her master's at Columbia, I believe, starting last fall. And then uh, just this past August began her PhD at University of Washington. And um, so, so she's like just going tier one to tier one school. Like she's... <laughs> I you love that. How to push your books down. Like she's yeah, like, she's, and she's like, let me just not, let me just keep going. Yeah, she has it in her and That's she can awesome. really stay in school for, I feel like her entire life. Like she's so, you know, just um, driven when it comes to like the demands of that work. And she excels flawlessly, like how she works with us and also does that, I do not know. And all props go to her. Um, but to answer your question on the compensation piece, Like I, as of this year, I'm so fortunate and blessed to say that uh, we got to a point with our fundraising to where I was able to go completely all in on this and not need a side gig to supplement. Um, It allowed me to, you know, start taking steps to support myself because previously I was working minimum wage contract jobs, making between 10 to 15 an hour, um, not even at always a full 40 hours. So uh, it's been a day and night shift. And the stability that that's provided has just done wonders for my ability to commit to the project and to make this my sole passion and, you know, just spend every moment of every day, like doing some work, even if on vacation, like I never just don't do anything for TPP, even if it's just checking my emails or tweaking some stuff around in Canva. Um, this is definitely <laughs> like my, my life's work and almost feels like a child that I birthed and that I'm raising. Um, so it feels great to to be able to like say that, yeah, the organization that I, you know, started is what is paying my bills and allowing me to make this exciting move to DC and, you know, just finally reach the milestones that I was so behind on because of the issue that, you know, I started this about and it just it was this like really awesome and beautiful full circle moment when that happened. Yes. Oh, and I and I love that because um, I wanted to make I thought that was the case. And I wanted to make sure to point that out for people, because that's another barrier people often say is I have these golden handcuffs that are, my job is actually paying me well or I have a decent job, although I would love to start a nonprofit and have that and my passion pay me. I can't see that as a future for myself. Like I can't see anybody who's done that. And here you are, a young woman of color <laughs> who was like, let me go from these jobs that don't even pay me well. Oh. And let me go create my own opportunity and pay myself. You nailed it. That was the literal motto was like, I listened to a podcast where it was talking about opportunities and it was like, or 
you know, if you don't find someone or find one with someone else, you can create your own opportunity and create them for other people. And I mean, certainly easier said than done, but if you stick with it and you, it's not just hard work, it's hard work as part of a dedicated and intentional plan. Um, you know, if you're diligent, if you're in it for the right reasons, of course, it's like following that road and paying attention to what is happening around you as you go through that, like the universe will work with you as long as you're putting the effort behind it and like staying true to the cause. Oh, absolutely. And we talk a lot about manifesting your vision in this podcast. And that is a true message is that you have to put in the work, but mm -hmm. the doors will open and you have to choose to step through the right ones. Yes. And sometimes you have to backtrack and do some things and pivot and all this other stuff. But that's part of the journey. And if you're willing to go on that journey as a person and also in a professional capacity, you could build something really beautiful for yourself and for others. And especially as a social entrepreneur, the whole goal of that is to serve others mm. <laughs> through your passion and through your happiness. And so you now have achieved that part of being happy as a person and also living in a place to serve other people, which I think is amazing. Um, couldn't world. have planted this better <laughs> more in this messaging because people who listen to the podcast know that this is something that we talk about all the time is the struggle um, that folks go through to step out on their own and to be able to say, no, I am uh, confident that I'm going to be successful. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to speak into you about that, that it's been so beautiful talking to you. I know I've already kept you at our allotted time, but I wanted to make sure to just say um, if folks want to support your organization. What should they do? How do they how do they go and give you money for this purpose? Or how do they how do they support you in some way so that you can continue growing? Yes. Um, so, I mean, easiest method is definitely on our website, theprosperityproject.org. And I want to flag our spelling is unique. So prosperity, as we have it, is a mashup of the word prosperity and parity. So it's P-R-O-S-P-A-R-I-T-Y project.org, theprosperityproject.org. Uh, there's a donate button, or you can cut right to the chase and skip to our giving page, which is givebutter, G-I-V-E-B-U-T-T-E-R.com slash the prosperity project. Um, you know, we have quite a few recurring donors and, uh, you know, I would definitely encourage folks to whatever extent that they're able, um, you know, to not be one and done with us and to continue to give. Because as I've talked about, we have big plans. We do not plan to stagnate and play small. Like when we play, we play to win. We want to serve uh, thousands, if not millions of Black women over the course of our, our longevity. So um, certainly gifts that way are, are uh, the easiest, but we also have ways uh, to donate via traditional methods like a paper check or donor advised fund. Um, if interested, then feel free to contact me. Uh, my email is B as in boy, B as in boy, F as in Frank at theprosperityproject.org as well. Awesome. And I'll make sure all your contact info is in the show notes so that people can go directly to the website. They can go donate at your, um, yeah, shout out to Give Butter. I know a lot of organizations use them as their um, donor management tools. So it's great to have, um, have you mention them as well. And I love um, that people, you know, did have to note that the spelling is different, but the spelling is intentionally different for a reason. <laughs> so if you look at it and you think it's misspelled, it is not. It is nope. intentionally talking about parody in the name. And um, and so I'll make sure that all that information is available for people. And of course, yes, I'm wishing you 
many reoccurring major donors in your future. Hopefully that'll uh, be part of your fundraising strategy is how do you, how do you make sure that that happens for you? Um, so wonderful to meet you and be with you, Bree. Of course, I'm always going to be connected to you and your work and be following you around and looking at what you're doing and any way I could offer support. Um, but just thank you for being part of the collective, for sharing your story on the podcast and for inspiring hope in, in people and um, helping to get people forward in their financial journey so that they could be successful and thrive like you are now, which is great. Um, oh. So any parting words you want to say to the audience and then we'll close up. I just, you know, thank you all so much again for like being willing to hear this, this long and insane story and just giving <laughs> me space, Wendy, to share it and be my authentic self and, you know, get to talk openly about both the highs and the lows. Um, you know, just knowing that it's not a linear journey, progress and success are never linear, but um, it's always worth the the journey in the end, usually. Yeah. So uh, I, it will be, it will yeah. be. It definitely will. So th that's really it. And also that October is Student Loan Awareness Month. So I know we're pretty much at the end of that. But, um, you know, just for the folks who, you know, keep reading student loans uh, in the news and hearing about those headlines, we hope that when you, you read about that, you will think of us. And even if you're not supporting financially, just, um, you know, signal boosting and tell a friend, tell two friends, um, because, you know, impact is if we can get it to be a uh, critical mass where it's just like spread through word of mouth, I mean, that makes just as much difference, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Anything people can do to amplify about this issue and what you're doing would be appreciated. So thanks for being here with us and thanks for being here for our podcast audience um, to hear about the Prosperity Project and Bree's journey and about social entrepreneurship from a nonprofit founder who has actually started <laughs> recently and is now working in her nonprofit full-time, supporting her passion and her mission. So thanks for being here, Brie, and good luck to you in the future. And thanks for being with everyone in our audience for listening in. Take care. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Social Impact Level Up podcast. It's been awesome to interview today's guests, and I hope that you leave inspired to take action. If you're looking for any of the information we spoke about, it's probably down in the show notes. Make sure that you're checking them out and you're clicking on any of the links that seem exciting to you. If you are looking for a coach or a consultant to help you with your social impact or your sustainability, reach out to me via my website, hop on my email list, or jump into one of my programs. All of the links are below. So excited to have you as part of the collective. Make sure that you come back and join us for another episode next week.